Well, good evening. It is wonderful to be back. I mentioned to the men this morning, uh, it seems like every time that I'm scheduled to come here, I have to struggle with something going on in our life. Uh, this time, my entire family, with the exception of Barbara and our oldest daughter, got COVID. Um, and Barbara's not here tonight because she's in quarantine, because uh, she was exposed to all the rest of us. And so she has to be in quarantine. I wish she were here because when people meet her, they like me better. You know how that goes. <laughs> like, oh, there must be more to him than what you can figure out here. But before I begin, I just really want to say thank you for uh, the part that you play in the ministry that God has given us. You have been so important through the years. Uh, I remember I was telling a pastor in 2003, I came for the uh, midsummer missions emphasis and my mother was dying. Uh, in fact, I w was canceling. I wasn't going to come, but she stabilized. And so I thought, you know, I'll, I'll just drive down on Saturday night. I'll be there Sunday morning and go home Sunday afternoon. And I was teaching the adult Sunday school class. And someone just in passing said, you know, so when are you going back? And I said, you know, well, if I can work it out in August. That's all I said. Uh, someone came up to me after the service said, well, what's it take to get there? And I said, this time of year, it's about $2,800. And she said, oh, I could do that. And by the end of that week, you had given us $5,800. It was at a time in, in my life where I was going back and forth and just this crazy expense and the crazy schedule because of the war and doubting that I was doing the right thing. And it was God used you, really, to affirm that I was doing the best I could do. And whenever anybody would ask my pastor, like, what, what are they doing? And he would say, the best they can. <laughs> it's just, it was such, a, such a weird time. And you just have played an important role in our lives, and we thank you for that. So if you don't know me, let me just give you a little bit of an introduction. Uh, on our prayer card, there are three countries listed, you know, and people are like, so where are you? But even our kids used to play, you know, where in the world are mom and dad? And those of you that remember Carmen San Diego get that. But the young people are going, who? And anyway, it was a pixelated computer game. Yeah. <laughs> um, we started in what was called Zaire in 1986. Uh, it later changed its name to the Congo. We call it the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, because there's another Congo across the river which is French, we call that Congo Brazzaville. It's the Republic of Congo. So in 86, we went to Congo. Uh, in 93, because of the turmoil in Congo, we moved to Ivory Coast, which is in West Africa. And I call it Cote d'Ivoire, I call it Ivory Coast, because when we first moved there, it was illegal to call it anything but La Cote d'Ivoire. The president would say, hey, there's no place in the world called Ivory Coast. The name of our country is La Cote d'Ivoire. If you wrote us a letter addressed to Ivory Coast, it would come back. Address unknown. Like, really? But anyway, he passed in 93, and so that kind of went away. So I call it both. Now, I still have the habit of saying Cote d'Ivoire, even when I'm speaking English. But if you can call it Ivory Coast, don't worry about it. You don't have to be able to say La Cote d'Ivoire. <laughs> sounds like something to order in a French restaurant, doesn't it? <laughs> so uh, war started in Ivory Coast in 2002. And uh, we stayed for quite a long time. Finally, in 2008, we had this opportunity to come up in Belgium. And I just knew from the very first phone call that God was in it. 
Uh, I didn't really understand that because my automatic answer is no. Uh, whenever someone says, hey, would you like to candidate for this church? No. Would you like to teach in a Bible college? No. And <laughs> I just, my automatic answer is no. I'm doing what I believe God wants me to do. I always say, okay, you know, I'll step back and say, oh, is this God? Uh, you know, I, I do want to always be open, but my automatic answer is just no. I'm not interested in any, doing anything else that, other than what we do now. And so I just knew from this first phone call. As it turned out, uh, in retrospect, I'm sure that it was God intervening in our lives to get us in a place of healing. We were living in an extreme uh, stress situation. And I, I mentioned in one of the groups this morning, Barbara just kind of casually said one day on the way to church, uh, you know, I bet not many people had a grenade launcher pointed at their car on the way to church today. <laughs> it, which reminds me, you know, our, our cards, our big, big project for this furlough is to replace the vehicle that the rebels took from us during the war. And uh, Barbara's objective, she says, I just want a car that doesn't throw mud on you through the floorboard, you know, because <laughs> we weren't buying a car. You know, it's like you, they tried to take them away from me all the time anyway, and I just wasn't going to risk that. So things are better now. And uh, we're about $10,000 away from being able to meet this goal, so we're pretty excited. It, it seemed, in the beginning, I thought, I don't know, I just, that's a lot of money. But people, God just started moving in the hearts of people, and it just seemed obvious that he was in this. And so uh, that's what we're working on right now. So in 2008, we moved to Belgium. Um, that was a, an unusual thing for us. Was living in Congo, Barbara had said, yeah, I'll never go to Belgium. Uh, that was not a good combination, the Belgians and Congo, and it didn't leave a good taste in your mouth. But it uh, got blessed there, and um, what had happened was we had a colleague leave abruptly, and the church was just foundering and had dwindled down to nearly nothing. So we restarted this church with six people. We did a replant, so to speak. And uh, in January of 2020, I turned the church over to a man that had been our intern, and he is now the pastor of that church. And so we were free then to return to Ivory Coast is what we're doing now. Uh, we've kept our house all of this time because I was in and out quite a lot. And our son was there for four years working, and so it paid to keep the house. But um, we're excited about going back, even though it's a very different place. Before the war, Yamasukro. Uh, which is the political capital of Ivory Coast, was about 125,000 people. You know, it was kind of village-like. It's a weird town, but um, during the war, it inflated to about 250,000. We seriously rented the only house in town because the owner didn't want to rent it to Africa. He's African, but he didn't want to rent it to Africans. And so we have had this house all of this time. Now they tell me, we were there in February last year, that it's about 380,000, which I don't know where these people came from or what they're doing, but it's a very different place than it was. And so we're kind of excited about uh, the new opportunities. We'll be putting together a team for a new church plant and tweaking the Bible college and you know, kind of moving through the curriculum a little bit. And some of it has to be rewritten, and, uh, which I have known that for some time. But uh, we're excited about it, and I want to thank you again for the part that you play. I mentioned in one of the classes this morning, you know, I'm not one of those people that uh, God had to hit in the head with a brick to get me to be a missionary. He didn't have to threaten me with disease, you know, or, you know, destroy my life in any way to get me. I longed to be a missionary. Amen. 
But when you get exposed to missions, all at once you're faced with this reality that more than half the world will go to bed tonight having never once in their life heard a clear presentation of the gospel. I remember that when the first time that that hit me, I was a teenager, it's a long time ago, and I thought, how did that happen? What, whatever happened? How, how did that get to be the reality that we live with today in a world so full of communication that still half the world has never heard? And travel is just insanely easy. Travel is no more expensive now than it was when we started 35 years ago. Dollar for dollar, not inflated dollars. It's just crazy. I, I really believe that your grandchildren are not going to say, hey, did you go? They're going to say, where did you go? Because it's so easy to go. You can get on an airplane in 12 hours. You can be just about anywhere in the world. And 12 hours is significant to me because one of the early people I met in Cote d'Ivoire was a guy named Yusuf. It's the name Joseph. Yusuf was from Mali. He was, we call, in French, we call him a trafficant. That doesn't sound so bad. In English, that is a smuggler. <laughs> if you wanted something, Yusuf could find it for you. And, uh, you know, he put you in touch with people that are selling stuff and whatever. He became a good friend, and he would just stop by the house periodically just to visit and usually had some agenda. But anyway, it, uh, he knew he could call me at 12 o'clock because I'd be there for lunch. So every day for lunch, I'd get a call from Yusuf. Anyway, when I met Yusuf, he was Muslim. And in fact, I think he passed Muslim. Yusuf lived a 12-hour drive from Bwake, where we lived. He was 20 years old before he ever heard of Christianity. He was 30 years old before he ever met a Christian. And many times he would say to me, Downs, I don't know, people just call me Downs. Downs, you almost, you almost, man, you almost convinced me. He said, it's so different with you. I don't ever have to explain everything. You just truly care. And if you've ever worked with Muslims, I know a couple. One was an Iraqi, and I've known, I've known a couple people that either through the word of God or some other way, they, they, they became convinced of the truth of Christianity. But almost every other Muslim I know, their testimony, once they become a believer, is nobody ever loved me like they love me. You're not going to persuade them. You're not going to convince them. They're not interested in your arguments. Quoting the Quran to them, imagine them quoting the Bible to you. How effective that would be. <laughs> you know, it just is not going to work. Even though I probably know more about the Quran than most Muslims do. And I could quote a lot of it to them, but I would never do that. You just love them. One of the first guys that came to Christ in the first church that we planted in Ivory Coast had been very ill, so sick. Because in Ivory Coast, when you are sick unto death, your parents, your family just like lets you be. No, 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 there's no point in investing further in this because it's not going to go anyplace anywhere anyway. People who had AIDS, their family just pushed them aside because that's a death sentence. There's no point in investing 
in that. And so his family had just abandoned him, but our church took it upon themselves to care for him. And when he came to church, he got saved, and he said, no one ever loved me like you. My family didn't love me like you love me. And people come to Christ that way. So what do you do with this reality that more than half the world has never heard? Engage. I said, I'm not one of those people that God had to hit in the head with a brick. You know, I, I think often of Isaiah's vision and its famous mission passage in Isaiah chapter 6 when he said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I go? Uh, who shall I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And we, we quote that all the time. And it's almost like you get this feeling like God, he's standing before God and God's addressing Isaiah. And I don't think that is the scenario. It's like Isaiah finds himself in the throne room of God in this vision. And he overhears God musing among himself, like only he can, saying, hmm, who shall I send? Who will go for us? It's like Isaiah hears this and he says, hey, look over here. I'll go. You can send me. Hey, hey, look. That is my testimony. I was saying, God, I will go anywhere. I'll do anything. And finally, I think God said, if you'll just shut up, you can go to Congo. I don't care. I'll go anywhere. <laughs> and that fulfilled my dream, the desire of my heart that God could somehow use me. When we started, you know, we always say, you know, yeah, we're church planners. If you've never done it, I had done it once here in America, you know, but it was, it's different. And it was in the Ozarks where our heritage was. And so, you know, it wasn't really, well, okay, it was cross-cultural, but it, <laughs> I had never lived in the Ozarks. It's my family's from the Ozarks. You know, I always kid, like Barbara and I met in church, and when she was 13, I was 15. We didn't get married right away, but it wasn't long after that. And... <laughs> Because <laughs> her family's from the Ozarks too. And anyway, I, I learned because, you know, my only exposure as a believer was to independent Baptists. I didn't know all this other stuff was going around. And we're in language school and they're going around the room, you know, and it's all these different missionaries from all over the place. And like one girl's a yoga instructor and the guy's an artist and they're going to Australia. No, they were going to Ivory Coast. That's right. He was going to illustrate books for a publishing house or something. I don't know. I mean, one, one, one couple were two girls going as church planners. I'm like, what? <laughs> well, what they mean is evangelism. They're thinking invisible whatever church, you know, and they're thinking gospel planting. Church planting is not gospel planting. Church planting is a local congregation that is able to reproduce itself over and over again. And so we have to be careful. When you, I tell people, you know, we're church planters and they don't even know what that means, which is okay, because then it gives you the opportunity to explain it. But I remember when we were in school, we came across a quote by a church growth specialist. His name was Donald McGavern. He said, more people come to Christ through new church plants than any other single strategy. Like, Okay, that's good to know. It's not particularly profound because that's the New Testament plan. <laughs> you know, like, 
okay, like this is the plan God gave us. And I remember sitting with some of our interns because I was trying to help them see through the idea of the local church and, and kind of tweak their theology, correct their theology a little bit. And, and, uh, and they just didn't see it. And I said, you know, I really believe there are going to be throngs of people that when they get to heaven, God is going to say, why didn't you just work the plan? I gave you a strategy. It's so simple. It's not easy, but it's simple and it's clear. We plant New Testament churches that plant New Testament churches. And just because that it's clear doesn't mean it's easy. And I tell new church planners, you know, I, I have a few friends that have been church planners that never experienced the enormous challenge of doing it. And I, I don't know why they didn't. <laughs> They're the guys who planted the church and then pastored it throughout their career. That's a different calling to me. Um, I am a church planter. I don't, I'm not, I told one of the groups this morning, I'm not a pastor. Uh, if you know me, if you're with me very long, you can say, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, like I, I'm not a shepherd. I don't have a shepherd's heart, so to speak. And it's about moving the ball forward all the time and always working, always fighting because we're, we're at war. And I am always aware of the war. Always. So we're at war for the souls of men. So we take this strategy and you start. <laughs> uh, it's often very inauspicious. When we first moved to Kinshasa, and I throw these names out like you all know right where these places are, you know, but uh, you should. Anyway, <laughs> we started in Kinshasa. Kinshasa was about 6 million when we lived there. It's 20 million now, about 6 million people. And uh, I was walking down the street in downtown Kinshasa, and the, the post office is this gigantic old colonial building. Basically, all the mailboxes in Kinshasa were in this building. For six million people, you know, so I, I, our box was like ten thousand seven hundred and thirty-one or something. There's walls and walls of mailboxes. So I'm walking down the street, and this little man comes running toward me and leaps into my arms. And at first, I thought I was being mugged. Then I thought he's too little to be mugging me. I mean, he's a little bitty guy, and and kind of old. His name was Tata Mayele. And Tata Mayele worked at the post office. He had. He was recently retired. He retired at fifty-five there. And uh, he was recently retired, and I finally figured out what he was saying. He said, we've been praying for you, we've been praying for you, we've been praying for you. And it turns out that even though he lived in Kinshasa, he was from a village of Chene. And uh, Brother Smith has been there. <laughs> he was from Chene, and they'd been praying since 1960 that, somebody would, that God would send a new missionary. And I knew that of this need at Chene, but I really didn't know anything about getting there yet. We had just arrived and it was through him that we began our first church plant in Kinshasa. We went out to the outside of town because I just knew I was going to do some stupid things, you know, and I didn't want it to get back into the city that I was an idiot. <laughs> and so, you know, we went outside of town and, 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 and things were going well, you know, even though it was a small town. We built a little building and, and I get a message saying, hey, there's a problem in the village. You need to get out there right now. OK, so I drive out there and. And the owner of our property is there. Like, oh, I thought I was the owner of our property. Uh, yeah, it turns out that the chief gave us someone else's property. It happens a lot there. 
And so I'm thinking, man, this could be bad. We already have a building on here, and you know, I don't know how this is going to work out. Finally, the chief just says, well, they've already built a building. You just take a different piece of land to the owner. <laughs> He's like, okay. And that was that. Like, life should be so simple. <laughs> and in Kinshasa is not. I had two or three friends in court almost any given moment fighting over some piece of property they had both bought <laughs> from different family members. Anyway, from that really inauspicious start, God began to move and we began to plant churches and I finally got to Cheney. Cheney was a, a village church that uh, had been started in 1927. The missionary was buried there. He died there in 1956 along with three of their children. One at one year, one at six months, and one at one day. And, you know, the first time you go, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, let's go visit the graves. And, and all these men are standing around said, where he laid down the torch, you take it up. And I'm thinking, me? <laughs> Seriously? I mean, they, these are heroes. And it, they were having church. You know, it had been going on a long time. This is a village of about a thousand. They were running about 300, I don't know, 350 maybe. And uh, I just kind of said, hey, if you uh, went to the villages out around here and invited people, you think they'd come? Yeah, probably. Uh, why don't you go ask them? Okay. And the church grew from 300, 350 to 800 in a year. Brother Smith visited us in Kinshasa, one of the very rare guests we ever had there. That is a formidable thing to visit Zaire, believe me. And he's game for anything. So the other end of his trip fell apart because there's no communication there, you know. And so he, was, he didn't want to fly a thousand miles to someplace he'd never been and having no idea if anyone was going to be there to receive him. And so he just stayed with us. I said, well, a few days, let's go to the village. And it, it, just lightly like that. It's a two-day trip each direction. Uh, the last day you make about 100 miles in that day. It's a rough trip. Anyway, we get there. It's late at night, Saturday night. Sunday morning we get up and I, I start to head for the church. And they're like, wait, no, just wait. So they're getting things ready. And a uh, little later they come and get us. And he and I walk in the side door, this auditorium, like onto the platform, looking into this sea of people. The building was probably designed to seat about 600. On that morning, there were about 1,250 people there. They were standing in every window, sitting down every aisle, all over the place. So he preaches in English. I interpret into Lingala. My secretary interprets into Kadinga. It takes a long time to get something said. I mean, truly, you can forget what you were talking about by the time that guys get done. And so we get all done. And we start the invitation and hands go up all over this room. And the deacons and the pastor and the other leaders of the church go around through the audience and say, put your hand down. You've been saved for years. What's wrong with you? you know? And they're thinking, you just want to go get, get saved because the missionary's here. You know? And so for 20 minutes, they're telling people, put your hand down. Like, what's, you're, the, you're a deacon's wife. Put your hand down. What's the matter with you? And, and, for 20 minutes, they go and they're like discouraging people from coming. And still, 258 people trusted Christ that day. He came away. At that point, I don't know, he'd been in 40 countries or whatever, you know, I, I can't keep track of it all. Somehow he does, I don't know. But, uh, and he said, you know, I've never experienced anything like this. 
I said, well, I'm from Kansas. Me either. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, and now, and I was telling the young people this morning, I said, we tell these stories, and you're like, what a great story. This is my life. This is my life. I never cease to be amazed that God lets us do this. God began to use us to plant churches a few years ago. Preachers say this, you know, I, I don't know. Sometimes we blame things on God that maybe not. I, know, I would say God laid on my heart to set a goal. I just never have been a numbers person. And I get that every number is a soul. I just, you know, people are like, how many did you have? Not enough is really my answer. Never enough. You know, it's like, it's like a bench in Africa. How many people can you get on a bench? One more. It's always one more. How many people can you get in a van? One more. Always. <laughs> and, and, and so I was praying about this and, and to, on Easter. This is like 2017, I think. On Easter, you know, how many, how many people actually attend these churches? At that point, and still we're at, we've been planted 37 churches. And I'm praying and... Started praying about having 30,000 people in those churches on Easter. And I got under conviction because it was just kind of between me and God. It's like, okay, God, I'll set a goal. Not, you know, it's like when you go on a diet, don't tell anybody. So then when you go off your diet, no one knows. <laughs> they can't condemn you. It's kind of like that. You know, like I have this goal. This will be awesome if it, you know, if it happens, but what if it doesn't? I don't know. And I got under conviction. So I shared it with our church in Belgium and I finally just shared it publicly that we were praying to have 30,000 people on Easter 2017. And it took a long time. The logistics are very difficult. It took a long time for the numbers to come back. And on that Easter Sunday, we had 32,700 people in those churches. I'm from a little church in Kansas, honestly. A church that couldn't afford to have an associate pastor when I was the associate pastor. The idea that God would do that is just amazing to me. It reminds me of, of the story in Mark chapter 2 where the four friends take their friend to Jesus. And the telling verse, I believe it's verse 5, it says, when Jesus saw their faith. Folks, that pronoun, is so, it changed everything for me when I saw that. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, son, your sins are forgiven you. I believe with all of my heart. It's not just because Tim and Barbara went to Zaire. That is a, certainly an important aspect of it, and someone has to go. There is no substitute for the resident missionary. Amen. No substitute. Someone has to live there and learn the language and learn the people and learn the culture. There's no way around that. But it's not just us. It's all of us. It's the person who gives and the person who prays and the person who goes in this corporate body. And I, I shared with a group this morning that this is why we do the New Testament church. It's one of the key reasons. It's because it's here that you have an opportunity to give. It's here that you learn about the needs of the world. It's here that God uses all of this together to do something extraordinary that he would never do under any other circumstances. This is his plan. And God looks down at our faith and he does something extraordinary. When we lived in Kinshasa, young chaplain 
came to visit me. And uh, I, in fact, I visited with a Congolese lady this morning from here, and uh, I was going to tell her about Kunzi, and it just the conversation changed. But Kunzi came to visit me, and uh, fr another friend t had told him about me, and he came, and he said, you know, I want to start a department of evangelism in the military. And I said, well, man, that's awesome. He said, but I want you to help me. Oh, no, I'm a church planner. I don't do that kind of stuff. You know, that's, that's not church planning. We don't do that. Uh, and so he left, and he came back a few weeks later, and he said, you know, I want to start, to start a department of evangelism in the, in the military. Now, military, understand, when you sign up, it's 40 years. And there's no, like, get out. <laughs> it's 40 years. And in our city, at the time, like I said, it was about 6 million. There are 15 military bases. About 450,000 people live on these military bases. This is soldiers and families. Because they provide your housing for you for 40 years. Anyway, he came again. He said, you know, I, I have this plan. I said, I know. And he asked the deadly question. I hate this question. Would you at least pray about it? I didn't need to pray about it. I already knew what I was going to do. You know, I'm a church planner. This is not church planning. And I'm laying in bed, kind of awake at night, telling God, you know, there, there are other organizations that do this kind of thing. I mean, you know, Campus Crusade, whatever. There's all kinds of groups that do this kind of thing. And, but nobody was. And that kept, kept coming through my mind. In French, we say, cross my, cross my spirit. It kept crossing my spirit. But nobody is. And I finally got the message God was saying to me, like, engage. And so Kunzi came a third time. He said, have you been praying about it? And I said, yeah, I have. But, you know, I don't have any time. And I don't have any money. I don't, you know, I don't know, what, I don't know what I can do. But, you know, we'll see what happens. So we started a Bible study where the, the base he was on. And it's going well. Crowds are big. And started training leaders, and by the end of about six months, we had leaders trained to lead Bible studies in the, on the other bases. By the end of a year, we had Bible studies in every one of the 15 military bases. By the end of two years, each one of those Bible studies was averaging 500 in attendance. There's 7,500 soldiers attending those Bible studies every single week. And I learned, don't put God in a box. I think I understand some things about God, but it's just what I think I understand, you know. I mean, the Bible's clear on a lot of things, but sometimes God does something extraordinary. God doesn't, Jesus doesn't say to everybody, come to me across the water, Peter. <laughs> but he does to some people. And those people, there's going to be those people that God does something different with you than he's done with other people. I knew that I would never be a Peter, but my prayer has always been that God would bring a Peter into my life that, that could be discipled. And it's, it's an extraordinary thing. In the beginning, it's painful. It's an extraordinary thing when your disciple begins to pace out past you. And you realize, I'm not half the man that he is. I'm not half as godly as he is. I don't have the power of God like that on my life. To watch them grow into leaders that I could never be is an amazing, amazing thing. Because that is the grace of God that only comes because someone said, I don't know what you can do with me, but I'll go. 
He's not looking for the gifted, the brilliant, the extraordinary. He is searching about through the whole earth, looking for someone in whom he can show himself strong. Paul said three times I asked God that he would take it away. And he said, but my grace is sufficient. I have made strong in your weakness. He shows his power because we could not receive the credit. It's impossible. It's always been my prayer. God, please do something that could never be attributed to us because we work hard or because we're smart or whatever, that it had to be attributed to you for your exclusive honor and glory. What do you do with this reality that more than half the world has never heard? You engage. Get rid of the dead weight. Join the race, join the war, join the army, get engaged. It may mean investing a little more time praying. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 1, the apostle Paul said, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. That is so critically important. When our vehicle was taken, the reason we're raising money for a vehicle is because our, reason, our vehicle was taken by the rebels. The warlord that took it is a monster. In any, any definition of monster you want to think of, he was a monster. But he facilitated my staying in Boake when everyone else was gone. I was the only expat there. And I stand out in a crowd. Everybody knew when I was there. And it, it was the most extraordinary thing to have suffered such loss, but in that loss, God used it to facilitate our continuing. And I don't want you to misunderstand this or take this the wrong way, but Barbara is the one who made this observation. You know, we had other colleagues there from other organizations and, and that fled during this time. They had young children, it was different. They fled and there's nothing to show for the fact that they were ever there in Boake because it all just went away. But because we persevered by God's grace, the work continued and we were able to, 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 to bring it to fruition in places that it would have just dissolved had we not stayed. You engage. Engage at a new and deeper level. It may be that you've relaxed your giving. There was a time where you used to really stretch your faith when it was time to talk about giving to missions, and now it's just easier to give by budget. God doesn't want all of you to be stretched like that, but he wants some of you to be stretched like that. You may be that person that God is saying for you. It's everything. Everything. When I say that, people go, ooh, wait a minute, <laughs> everything? Sometimes God says everything. When C.T. Studd was coming back from China, he inherited 25,000 pounds from his family. It's the equivalent of millions of dollars today. And he gave it all away, except for 1,000 pounds, to people like Spurgeon and Moody, um, Orphanage guy. Anyway, yeah, George Mueller. 
to people like that. He gave it all away except a thousand pounds. He was going to keep that. And his wife said, I thought God said all. Gave that away too. No one, there's no record. No one understands or knows how they lived in China during that period of time. They had no income to speak of. And he had given it all away. Sometimes God says to you, all. Maybe saying to you, go. You should be so honored. So, so honored. I still cannot believe that God said yes to my prayer. Please send me. Ask him. Paul said, desire the office of a bishop, you desire a good thing. He's talking about the pastorate. But I believe that principle applies in other areas of service. God is saying, engage. You know, I don't know what God can do, but he does. And he wants to. He wants to take you and do something extraordinary. And some years from now, it'll be you standing here saying, you can't believe what God is doing. So I cannot believe it. I never dreamt in all of my life that God would have done what he has done. But he did. And we're not done yet. I know I look like I should be done, but I'm not done yet. Still have years left. My doctor said, you know, if you want to keep doing this, he said 20 more years. I know he wanted to say 10. <laughs> you got to take better care of yourself. I'm like, yeah, okay, I know. Once I get back to Africa, things will work out. <laughs> if God is saying to you, go, just let me say, respond by two words. Thank you. Thank you for calling me. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. Lord, I am so thrilled that you put us in your work. It makes me emotional because I still cannot believe it. And I thank you for that. Lord, I pray that this evening that you would indeed stir the hearts of your people for those that need to engage in a new and a more profound way. Lord, that we would look back in this time in their lives and know that this was a time that they engaged and that you've done something important. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We want all and everything to be for your honor and your glory, that the name of Jesus would be magnified. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.